Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sasha Polakosaransky, a deputy editor here at FP, and you're listening to the ER, our weekly podcast. This week, we're focusing on Syria. On April 7th, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's regime launched yet another suspected chemical attack, this time in the Damascus suburb of Douma. 500 people there showed symptoms consistent with exposure to chemical weapons, including burning eyes and white foam coming from their mouths and nostrils. After calling Assad, quote, an animal, and warning on Twitter that missiles will be coming nice and new and smart, President Trump followed through on his threat on the evening of Friday, April 13th. My fellow Americans, a short time ago, I ordered the United States Armed Forces to launch precision strikes on targets associated with the chemical weapons capabilities of Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad. And so it began. In cooperation with France and the United Kingdom, the United States launched strikes on three Syrian regime targets connected to the chemical weapons program. What happens next? I have a guest to discuss this with us today. Andrew Tabler is the Syria expert to listen to. He is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and the author of the book In the Lion's Den, an eyewitness account of Washington's battle with Syria. Andrew, welcome. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's begin with the obvious. What impact do you think these strikes will have for Assad and for the people of Syria? So the the strikes which were centered uh, on chemical weapons production facilities will seriously impact the regime's ability to make and distribute chemical weapons uh, to their different units throughout the country. How many are actually already further afield is unknown. But of course, Syria is not supposed to have particularly sarin in its stockpile at all as a result of the 2013 chemical weapons agreement. So past agreements have dealt with the chemical weapons problem but not decisively. And given the fact that this is the second time the U.S. has struck inside of Syria concerning chemical weapons, that they continue to be used, we can expect that President Assad will likely continue to use them uh, after the shelf life of this, in- this intervention has worn off, so to speak. So let's go back a little bit. In 2012, President Obama famously called the use of chemical weapons a red line. But that red line wasn't enforced. Is that part of the reason, in your view, and part of the explanation for the chaos around the ongoing use of chemical weapons today? Yes. So not enforcing that red line had several detrimental effects to the, in the Syrian war, particularly it signaled to the Syrian regime that they could continue to use such weapons after they rid themselves supposedly of their stockpile, although that has obviously now fallen short. Um, it also signaled politically that they did not want, the United States did not want to go further militarily to push Assad out of power. Uh, and I think that ultimately strengthened uh, his hand. Um, and I think there were a series of other uh, knock-on effects uh, and, um, and, and costs with other U.S. allies who were very concerned by not enforcing that red line. So overall, it undermined our strategic situation years later, and we're still staring in the face uh, uh, at a regime that um, uh, continues to have not only this capacity, um, and according to Pentagon officials, it still has a limited capacity, but has increasingly been turning to chlorine, which is an industrial chemical but not a banned substance, uh, to use instead. And uh, that will continue the problem, and uh, that could lead then to more U.S. strikes. 
So you said earlier that these strikes recently could impact the regime's ability to use chemical weapons, but at the same time, we've seen that they're still managing to produce and to commit these sorts of attacks. Do you think that limited strikes such as this most recent one, can in the long term achieve meaningful military or strategic objectives? Or is there a real risk that Assad and his allies will look at what happened and calculate that this is a price worth paying and a risk that they can keep taking? I think there are two things. One is these particular strikes, I think, will have a tremendous impact on their ability to produce sarin and other, other kinds of nerve agents. The question is whether it impacts chlorine or not. Chlorine is readily available. It's not just stored in one place. Uh, the technology to deliver it is pretty rudimentary. They just drop it out of Assad regime, either helicopters using barrel bombs or they use surface-to-surface uh, rockets and missiles in other cases. So it, 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 it allows us to affect the chemical weapons calculation of the regime. But in order to stop it, there would have to be such a price paid by the regime or by U.S. strikes that it would uh, feel that it has to go down other avenues. Um, now, that, that you know, pressure to go elsewhere could either come from the fact that the Assad regime has very little in terms of military forces and can't really spare them. It could also come from the fact that the Assad regime relies diplomatically on Russia, and Russia um, somehow gets Assad to bend uh, to this new reality and rely on conventional weapons. Uh, instead. And so we'll have to wait and see if this establishes the deterrent that the administration uh, says it seeks to uh, to establish. And we'll have to wait and see what the U.S. is willing to commit to, to this process when and if the Assad regime uh, returns to using chlorine uh, in their attacks on the opposition. Let's talk a little bit more about Russia. How did U.S. policy towards Syria, or, or the lack thereof, in the early years of the conflict allow Russia to become more involved in this conflict to the point that they're a major player today? There, were, there was a sort of – it was, it was a progression of um, decisions. I think one was the decision by the United States to announce that President Assad should step aside uh, when it was at the same time unwilling to outline a plan – to, to, to do so and, um, and, and, to, and to force him to step aside. So it was an aspirational policy. It was not one that had the mechanism to, for, for Assad to be removed. That set in motion this civil war, uh, in a way, or helped set it in motion. I think the Syrians were primarily responsible for kicking it off, obviously. And then uh, into this, Russia became increasingly concerned as different sides in the Syrian conflict, particularly among the opposition, began to fill up with Salafist and jihadist Salafist organizations. And uh, that went over the line, I think, with Russia in terms of a terrorism threat. Then over time, as relations between the U.S. and Russia worsened, it became more of a great power uh, struggle. Um, And the Russians said, um, and have said on multiple occasions, that um, the Obama administration was trying to use the color revolution strategy that they had used in Ukraine, um, the sort of popular resistance against authoritarian power. They were trying to use it in Syria, and that the Russian military was dead set against against this because of its effect in the Ukraine and elsewhere, and they're near abroad. Ultimately, though, what led to Russia entering the fray was walking away from the chemical weapons uh, red line and allowing Russia to broker a deal that ultimately reduced Syria's chemical weapons stockpile but didn't eliminate it. Uh, that gave them an entree, and then uh, two years later, when the regime was 
contracting because uh, of its limited manpower and the effectiveness of the rebels, Russia then uh, saw an avenue, especially after the United States signed the uh, JCPOA nuclear deal uh, with Iran, to enter Syria and to play a greater military role. And this is how Russia came to be uh, in the heart of Syria, and um, and it's going to be interesting to see how long they're there and um, and how difficult they try to make it for the United States. And how much does Russia's ongoing presence there constrain the United States' choices and military uh, options in Syria that seems to be a major concern for the Pentagon now, how to take action without antagonizing Russia or coming too close to Russian forces. Is that a consideration that, that American military planners are, are taking into account? Sure. So Russia entering the Syrian war in support of Assad came with it, particularly S-400 and S-300 anti-aircraft systems. So that gives the Russians the ability to uh, deny airspace and uh, freedom of maneuver to American forces in the eastern Mediterranean and even maybe beyond. So that is a serious um, challenge for the U.S. In the overall fight against ISIS, it's difficult because we are flying on a daily basis uh, into those areas to, to, to hit ISIS, and uh, that brings us up oftentimes up against Russian aircraft. Um, and, of course, Russian aircraft um, in the most recent strikes uh, by the U.S. Uh, were buzzing U.S. ships uh, off the Syrian coast, um, similar to... Uh, their activities in the Baltic uh, over the last few years. This um, makes it likely, well, it doesn't make it likely, it makes it opens the possibility that some sort of error or mistake uh, takes place. There's a tragedy and uh, a greater conflict with Russia could be kicked off. Uh, hopefully, though, cooler heads prevail and that even when such accidents occur, that they can be handled, but there's no guarantees. Right. You wrote recently in an article that the U.S. government should explicitly incorporate warnings of future strikes into its Syria strategy to force political concessions from Assad. Russia and Iran have already used their military might in Syria to achieve their political objectives there. Do you believe the United States needs to do the same thing if it wants to have any influence over the war's eventual outcome? It's very difficult to affect the outcome of a war unless you're uh, willing to use uh, some military force uh, to achieve political outcomes. We have a political outcome, an objective, and that is we would like, in order for Syria to be stabilized, for President Assad to step aside as part of a transition or to tra transform the regime into something else. The chemical weapons red line enforcement is an interesting avenue because it is one that the president has committed to, and I think he feels very strongly about this, uh, and also, the United States has the ability to carry out such strikes without putting U.S. personnel in serious risk and serious harm. And I think that's, a, that's an important constraint. Uh, America, the American public uh, does not want to be trapped in endless wars in the Middle East. But in terms of the chemical weapons red line, uh, it is more politically acceptable and militarily feasible. So in order to carry these out successfully, though, you can't simply strike forever. It has to be tied to a political process and that is first viable ceasefires uh, and then bringing about a political process in which we have a transition in the country or a devolution of power so that the country can become stabilized and that ISIS doesn't come back and somehow Iran is able to pull back uh, from their forward positions. This is right now a distant goal, but remains the goal of the United States. 
And given recent events on the ground and the Assad regime's military triumphs in the areas surrounding Damascus, you say it's a long-term goal. Do you fear, though, that Russia and Iran see their strategic position as stronger than it's ever been and that that puts such a goal out of sight and the idea of Assad actually voluntarily stepping down, does that make it less and less realistic? That's a very good question. So I think the Russians and the Iranians have been very successful at using relatively limited resources to project their power, and that explains their staying power, so to speak, in this part of the Middle East. However, I think there has to be a way to drive up the cost for Russia and Iran to do this. Of course, the administration is now considering issuing sanctions on Russia for their activities uh, in Syria. Uh, similar sanctions have been issued against Iran for these activities. But overall, if you can increase the cost to Iran and Russia, they might not be as willing to back up uh, Assad until the very end, and uh, therefore might help facilitate a transition. But again, it, it depends on how it's incorporated into the, into the strategy what other U.S. diplomatic um, uh, and military might could be added to this formula. And just on the simple turn of events inside of the Syrian war, which in the past uh, couple of years have gone from just being a, a localized civil war into a regional proxy war into something that threatens the general security architecture in the Middle East. Well, on that not-so-uplifting note, I'd like to thank you, Andrew, for joining us. I'm Sasha Polakos-Saransky, a deputy editor here at FP, and you've been listening to the ER, our weekly podcast. Thank you.